At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For almost a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. And we get to hear from you. This week, I'm talking with Michael W. Twitty, James Beard Award-winning culinary historian and author of the new book, Rice. So, Michael's book intrigued me because even after decades of cooking rice, I still most often make it plain and count entirely on the rest of dinner to deliver on flavor, which may or may not arrive. And I still make a mushy waterlogged pot from time to time. But since I started cooking for Michael's book, none of that has been true. In this week's Genius Recipe on Food 52, Michael's Meyer lemon rice with candied garlic. Every grain is drunk with flavor, but completely hanging on to its integrity. Nothing is mush, nothing is bland. And Michael's candied garlic is my new favorite sticky, crackly, sweet, savory way to make anything more delicious. But here, he dotted it on top specifically so that its sweetness would play against the bright, sunny lemon that just beams up from the pot. It would be excellent with chicken or chickpeas or fish or roasted vegetables, but it doesn't really need any of them to do much. They don't need to bring fireworks of flavor, they can just show up. So that recipe from Michael's new cookbook and the video with him talking us through are all up on Food 52 today, but here you'll get to hear even more about how to play with recipes but still be true to their origins, how to create richness with what you have, and about the African origins of many Southern rice dishes through the farmers and cooks enslaved from the not coincidentally named rice coast of West Africa. At the end of the episode, we will also hear from a few of our listeners on the ways that they cook their ideal pots of rice. And... While it would be overly simplistic to ask about the perfect pot of rice, I think that what each of us chooses to exist within those boundaries comes with a lot of, as Michael would say, intention and attention and potent history. So we'll start there. Here's Michael on what he looks for in his own ideal rice and how he gets there. I guess for me, it's about feeling. Um, it's about the way the, the rice feels in my hands dry the way the rice mm -hmm. feels in my hands is it's being soaked and washed. And that's very controversial, but that's what a number of different rice cultures around the world do is to soak and soak and wash and rinse the rice. And so for me, it's about, it's, it's, it's come to acknowledging how much moisture is going to be in the final product and when I, how I want that final product to feel, um, you know, to your teeth, to your mouth, to, you, you know, does it taste right? Does it absorb the flavors correctly? Um, all of that. And of course, basmati, jasmine, long grain, short grain, arborio, um, brown rice, all have very different um, standards. You know, I typically use long grain rice. Mm -hmm. 
And that disappoints people because there are literally 10,000 plus varieties of rice in the world. And (laughs) I use the most basic one, but I do that because of reliability. You know, it's, it's, it, the way it, the way it plays with moisture, the way it um, gives you that distinct each grain on its own feeling and you on your plate, in your hand, in your mouth that, you know, let's say a short grain sticky rice would not. So I don't use a rice cooker. I'm not good with math and numbers. <laughs> I know this is a pitiful answer, but I'm such a, no, but I'm such a, a home cook and such a traditional cook. Uh, there's mm-hmm. no, you learn, you learn to cook with your, with intuition, with feeling and with your eyes and your other senses. Um, I remember one time I was at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival and there was a woman who was from Uzbekistan and it was funny because we're in the kitchen together and there was a translator for some things, but really it was just me and her having to interact the best we could. Um, And I guess that was by design. There was a point where we both grab like a piece of cloth and some foil and we jinx we like crisscross each other and go to the pot to put it on top of the pot Hmm. and it was funny to us both because given the fact we did not speak the same language but we understood from very different backgrounds this is how we make sure the rice is is cooked you know correctly or properly so i know that's a weird uh rambling answer to your question but um it's hard to write recipes from that standpoint and everything that's why people go well, where's the rest where's the recipe and i'm like i know that's part of my responsibility as a, as someone who does write about food um sort of translate some of those ideas into formulas but because i re- view recipes as spells mm-hmm. and not formulas <laughs> it's not easy i love your answer because it's describing i think the point that i don't know at least i and i think a lot of home cooks want to get to where We don't have to rely on recipes where we can just eyeball the amount of the rice, the amount of the liquid, how much it needs to be washed, how long it needs to be cooked. All of those things I think we're all striving and the recipe is just, you know, it's it's one important step for someone who doesn't have the same intuition and and the same experience. It's interesting that you say you don't take to recipes, you don't work in recipes because your book is full of really great, clear recipes. Was that challenging for you to to develop those and test those? Very. And particularly when you use the word test, um, mm. I, I, I am very guilty of if I can get through something on the first try and take, you know, good copious notes and really be aware. I'm, that's a done deal for me. And I haven't had a lot mm-hmm. of problems. And there, there, there were only so many recipes in this book. And I really can't remember specifically which ones. Where I just had to like go at it several times. But the ones that are most challenging are the ones that are most traditional. <clears throat> Say for example like Morris mm-hmm. Cristianos mm-hmm. and other things. Which you know are very forgiving to a certain extent. But also require you to be really sort of like intentional. And um I use another word, spiritual, because they're so time honored because you, you the appearance and the flavor needs to be just so. But that's just my approach to the cooking. And it, and it did make it very challenging. I mean, that's why I'm glad this was, you know, 50 plus recipes and not, you know, 500. 
rice. I mean, I would have I would have never eaten rice again, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, against my heritage. But it's funny because a lot of people have been asking me, why rice? <sighs> I'm like, rice, I think, is a very um, important and potent story um, for telling the narrative of the African and African-American influence, um, not just on the Southern kitchen, but I mean, tucked away in some of the other global narratives. Well, you talk a lot in the book about pilaus, and I believe that this is an example of one, correct? The the Meyer lemon rice with the candied garlic? <laughs> it, um, so that's not not so much a, a, a pilau or a purlu. It's just that's me messing around in the kitchen. Uh-huh. That's me being silly. That's me being <laughs> thinking, thinking, thinking I'm somebody, thinking I got something to try. That's what that's what that is. I mean, I would I would love to be able to say yes. It's it's from the the the, the lemon people of the lemon islands <laughs> and their lemon ways with their lemon heads, but um, that, that's not that's not where that's going. But I was also in a place where, you know, I might have two dimes to rub together and figure out how to make this extraordinary food with very little money and, and not so much time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of... And also, I, I think at the time I wrote this, I was probably growing that lemon thyme and lemon basil. So it was also about using the elements of things that I had, that I invested the time and resources into, but now I had to make them, turn them into something I could build a food pantry off of. So... Can you tell me about where that came from or what you love about it? Just any anything you want to share about the candied garlic? Melissa Clark. I don't know if it was her or someone else, but I saw some candied garlic one day and I said, oh, garlic, sugar, two of my favorite things. Let's do this. <laughs> um, so I wanted that. So I wanted something that was, I like tangy lemon things. I do not like lemon desserts. Um, I, I like lemon, of course, I like lemonade, lemon ice, all that kind of good stuff. Lemon sorbet, lemon sherbet, fine. I don't like lemon desserts, but I do like tangy, savory lemon things. I love them. And so that's why I was so keen on, you know, making a lemon rice. And I guess we're calling it lemon purlu these days. <laughs> just, keep the, just keep the kids guessing. They'll love that. Lemon rice sounds kind of basic, but like lemon purlu. Oh, shucks. I want to know more. I want to know more. It sounds, that's what that tells me. <laughs> it sounds awesome. But that's, and that's, and that's kind of really what it is, because the idea of a purlu is that you have this strong flavor base, no matter what it is. And then you marry that with rice and let them duke it out. You know, I, wait a minute. I used, I used, you said marry and duke it out. That's, that's unfelicitous, isn't it? It is fitting though. It is fitting. It is fitting. <laughs> I mean, you're married, married, right? I'm married. We know. <laughs> yes, we know. We know. <laughs> did you, did you, did you take out the trash? Oh. <laughs> Hey, it's Kristen. Are you enjoying this chat with Michael as much as I did? If so, please head to the Genius Recipe Tapes and hit subscribe so you don't miss out on other conversations like this one. Like my recent interview with King Arthur Baking Company's team on what it was like to develop their 2021 recipe of the year, perfectly pillowy cinnamon rolls. In the second half of the episode, we are going to get into how a deeper understanding of where dishes come from affects how Michael cooks. Stay tuned. 
You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. Well, what what does define a pilau or a perlu? Um, it's conglomerate nature. I think that it's, you know, if I called it a rice casserole, I'd probably I I can already feel the rocks, um, coming at me through the window. <laughs> um, but it's sort of like that. It's it's a, it's it's that one pot one dish. And I know that's I know that's silly because it's a lot of one pot and one dish meals around the world, but it's, and especially in kind of rustic rural peasant cultures, especially that of the South. But I think that um, it's funny because it's, it's a layered idea, a layered concept, because you do have this word which comes from Central Asia, right? Pilau, pilaf, and it comes through palov. These aren't, these, this, the word and terminology doesn't exactly speak to a, an exact or direct origin. So there is some of that heritage of rice going from, um, Southwest Asia, through the Mediterranean, through the Iberian Peninsula, which was under Moorish rule, then complicated by the fact that rice in the New World, in the Western Hemisphere, is a story of enslaved Africans knowing about growing and cultivating rice, but also preparing it. So almost all the rice dishes that we see in the Atlantic world and they all have the imprint of West African cooking. Rice was grown by villages and commercially outside of the rice belt for the slave trade. They were, they were, it was demanded of them by European colonial powers, but also by African elites who were engaged in the slave trade to have basically food plantations where you grew um, yams and rice and maize and other things for the sole purpose of outfitting slave ships from Ghana, from Angola, from Nigeria, what is now Ghana, Angola, and Nigeria, and other spaces. And of course, that rice is more typically Ariza sativa or Asian rice, whereas Ariza glabarima, um, African rice, was the predominant type before the coming of the Europeans. But also, there was a, quite a significant growth of Ariza sativa by way of the the gold routes and silk routes with the with the Arab world, with the Islamic world. So we have all these different pieces to the puzzle. Um, and we have this word which suggests, you know, you know, a, a deeper connection. Karen Hess, the great um, culinary historian and food writer um, of late, she uh, went to great lengths in the Carolina Rice Kitchen to kind of like draw this link but it i don't think it was there i think that it was hmm. I, I i these these cooks from west africa did need a lecture about rice of central asia you know but i think some of the the culinary ideas the food ideas the flavoring 
um, some of the methods may have trickled down, but that trickle down was a long trickle down. You see what I'm saying? It's like, it, it takes a lot to get, you know, eke out that sort of like, okay, so from Persia and from medieval Europe and from the Iberian Peninsula and the Mediterranean, France, blah, 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 blah. Whereas Sierra Leone, Liberia, Senegal, Gambia, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau were right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? They were right there and present. Um, so it was a combination of a few trickle-down ideas, I think, that had come from a long, long way. And also um, a lot of knowledge in the heads, hearts, and taste buds of the African women and African men who were cooking you know, this rice for over 300-some years in the American South. So, um, Michael, with all of this history and all of these, these pieces of information that you have gathered in your research and all of the people you've talked to and all of the dishes you've cooked, how is this in your mind as you're cooking rice in your kitchen on a daily basis? Um, <laughs> it's, it's certainly informed my pantry, you know, um, what I have mm. around. Um, right now, there's arborio rice, there's bismati, there's jasmine, there's long grain, there's Carolina gold rice, and there's rice from West Africa. Um, mm-hmm. You know, things have picked up, things that I've bought, things that I've gotten from other people. Um, I certainly now have certain preferences about what I, what kind of things I use, like. I'm not I'm not too bougie about it, but I really am like if I'm gonna do this, yeah, I'm gonna do do it with the best. I kind of plant in mind in my little pots certain kinds of tomatoes, Amish paste and um San Marzanos and Cherokee purples and other things, and uh, large red tomatoes, which are the old southern tomato. And I guess I guess all I say all this to say that for other people I think that it's about lifestyle and that's, that's, that's at odds with being poor and that's at odds with just trying to survive. And that's also at odds with, you know, ancestral memory. And so for me to approach a pot of rice means to have the best ingredients I can that are also economical and, and, and within limit. Um, If you, it's just like when the minute you start getting, super 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 fancy and super out of the box with it you start to also lose the element of of satisfaction uh, also pride in your work the idea that you can grow things grow a few things that you can acquire a few things and put together something very simple but you know irreplaceable and tasty and satisfying it's just it, it, that's just how it works you know the minute it's kind of like when Michael um, Salamanov said on stage when I was doing a program at the Jewish Museum, he said that, yeah, I could throw in this or that, but that ingredient. But then it goes from being Jewish or Israeli to being Italian or Greek. And I, that statement really got to me because it was true. It's like, well, yeah, you can throw some Parmesan on it and you can throw some, <laughs> some of this and some of that. But then the minute you do that, it's not it's no longer where it's at. And I think in the same way that in this sense, you know, being careful about these ingredients and being careful about how you, how you do it up um, is so important because it helps you retain the proper feeling, intuition, 
um, and spirit. I still think those are my key ingredients. I can't get away from that. So I, I want the people who cook the food that I put on paper, the recipes, the spells that I put on paper, I want them to have like three different paths, one of which is patience and searching. So the, so when you so when I tell you, okay, Kristen, I want you to grow these type of tomatoes or grow this type of herb that, you know, you can wait three to four months for. I mean it because I want you to have the experience of seeing the plant, smelling the plant, um, you know, what it feels like to crush that Ethiopian basil in your hands mm-hmm. and take a good whiff and go, that's not like the other basil. Ah, that's unique. That's nice. And really sort of, you know, have that earthy sort of ecological experience with your food. The other point is that I want you to have the the, the flavors of the past the best I can communicate them to you. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you can either make your kitchen pepper, you can buy it from my spice line, you can do what you want to do. But I want you to have that in there so that you can understand that these simple little tricks take that simple recipe, like red rice, for example. Let's, let's go there for real mm-hmm. quick. So, for example, the stock is a certain way. You know, it's a bit... I put a, I throw a lot of vegetables um, at my stock. In, in fact, in Charleston, they would have what they called soup bunch, which contained turnips and rutabagas for sweetness, and carrots and celery and onion and garlic and collard greens. So that when you have this very, you have this very like, and if you thin it out a little bit, it gets lighter. And you, so you have this very rich stock, right? That then goes into this pot of rice with these very deep red and fruity tomatoes. And then you have the kitchen pepper, which is goes above and beyond just regular black pepper. You have your sea salt, you know, or whatever pungent salt you want to use. And then you have the, the you know, a, a, a bird chili, like the kind of plant I was just watering, or you have cayenne pepper, fish pepper, you know, which are uh, above and beyond just any red pepper cayenne you can find in a, in a box at a store. And then, of course, it's up to you to make sure that chicken is flavorful. So if you have a, you know, if you all you have is cheap chicken, great. If, if you really do have a, have a farm chicken, great. And if you have chicken from a butcher that you know makes really flavorful chicken, yes, sources really flavorful chickens or some online source, great. But that's the thing. How do we take these seven, eight ingredient country dishes and give them back their flavor, their life, their integrity? And without without being too fancy, without being too extravagant, because that wasn't the original point. The original point was to co- make community happen, to communalize and to satisfy. Mm-hmm. And those must those must be the first two ideas. And as you can you can hear me talk about this, work through it. This is this is not what you usually see in mm-hmm. a lot of Western food writing and understanding about food, right? That's not it. It's it's time and temperature and technique and, you know, silly things like taking the silver skin off of meat. I'm like, do y'all know black folks eat that part of the meat? We eat that skin. We don't we don't throw that shit away. Excuse me. Uh uh-uh, That's not how this works. Um, But it's but it's all those different pieces that have to be rescued. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. I really am sort of like on fire about that because. It's something that you have to live. You just can't, you can't even just learn or teach it. You have to just, you have to live it. And now, here are some of your favorite ways to make a pot of rice. Hi, this is Eva from San Diego, and you wanted to know how we cook rice at our house. 
We use a rice cooker and we wash our rice three times, which is how Chinese people wash their rice. Then we put in two Chinese sausages. The oil from the Chinese sausages, as it cooks, goes into the rice and gives it an extra flavor. The rice on the bottom also forms a nice crispy crust that can be eaten as is or made into a juk. Hi, I'm Becky Manning from Orem, Utah. I like cooking brown rice in the Instant Pot. First, I rinse it and then put it in the Instant Pot with equal parts water or broth. Cook at pressure for 22 minutes and then a natural release for 12 minutes. It's been a great way to add a healthier options to our diet. We like doing it with rain bowls. Hi, my name is Laura and I live in the Netherlands. My favorite way to cook rice is in a Persian rice cooker. Not only because the rice turns out delicious every single time, but also because it reminds me of my childhood. Growing up, my favorite moment at the dinner table was when my dad would turn the rice out of the rice cooker onto a serving plate. You would see this beautiful pile of rice covered in a crust of potatoes, crispy on the outside and buttery soft on the inside. This crust, called tadik, comes in many different forms, but the potato version is my all-time favorite because it is pure magic. Thanks for listening. You can find Michael on Twitter at koshersoul and on Instagram at thecookinggene. And you can find his new book, Rice, anywhere books are sold. Our show is put together by Coral Lee with support from Emily Hanhan. If you come across a genius recipe that makes you double-take, candied garlic style, I would always love to hear from you at genius at foodfeed2.com. And if you like the Genius Recipe tapes, please do take a sec to go rate and review, or even just subscribe if you haven't already. It all helps us out. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.